0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for the new wave of change that is emerging in our world today? What does it look like? How will it reshape our collective future? We see more and more women are making a rapid rise to the top, taking over leadership of their countries, influencing social and political decisions on a global scale. Welcome to The Rise of the Feminine with host Gina Lazenby. This is a movement that is putting the feminine values of compassion and collaboration back into the economy and our world. Everyone and everything is being affected. Our conversation starts now. Here's your host, Gina Lazenby.
1: Welcome to The Rise of the Feminine. I'm your host, Gina Lazenby, and I'm delighted to be a champion for this fascinating conversation. Not only are women rising in the world today, but feminine values are also being increasingly expressed more openly in men and women. Last week, the show was based in Rome, Italy, where I attended the Win Conference, joining 800 other businesswomen and a handful of men for a four-day event. It's definitely worth checking out the podcast of the show, and the easiest way to listen to it is to hit the podcast button on your smartphone and search for Gina Lazenby. The show was called Being a Woman is a Serious Business, and I had seven interviews from the event with some of the amazing speakers and a couple of snippets of the atmosphere that we all enjoyed. Now, today's show is a continuation of my report from the event, and we're looking at the feminization of capitalism. Last week, several guests shared insights from their plenary sessions about how the workplace of the future will require a new leadership that embraces so many of the values of the feminine. Love, compassion, caring, relationship, community, collaboration. And today we'll hear much more. So let's open the show with a conversation with Kristen Envig. She's the founder of the WIN Conference, and this amazing event has quite incredibly been going for 19 years now. It's obviously expanded along the way, but it seems to have stayed true to its tradition of being a global hub for women who want to exchange ideas, connect and create community with other women as they progress their careers in business or their own enterprises. Some women come for just one event while others make repeated visits. So I wanted to ask Kristin, what's happened as a result in the world of work because of these events
2: and how has she seen women develop? Yeah, when we started then everything was more careful also. I saw especially in corporate women were more than today. Um, eager to fit into the corporate model. So when we proposed things like yoga in the morning or dancing, that they were very careful in taking part of that. But now uh, we and many other organizations have been part of sort of creating what we have today in the world where suddenly you see an uprising of many, many women. Um, also in the beginning you could see um, that the whole... Um, it was a lot about glass ceilings, and it's not that that's not on, but we also see over the past 20 years countries like my own Norway that have now quotas, there's legislation, so much is in place. And still, uh, still I, I think that 20 years back I had believed that maybe we would have had even more progress than now even if it's a lot that's happening right now. So so it's as if you're coming into a new phase right now as we go into Win's 20th anniversary also, that the women are more freer. They fight more for themselves. Um, So it's... Yeah, so I I see sort of a freeing up people becoming more independent thinkers and not only thinkers but doing more things on their own especially those that have been here many times and it's not only because of wind of course they do their own work um, outside and meet other organizations the newcomers are also more quickly uh, falling into this understanding that yeah I can be a woman that's fine and I don't need to hate the men we can work together and men also have a feminine side, and I also have a masculine side. You know, it's more of an acceptance of themselves and, and of others. So in this phase where we're now more accepting each other, we can also accelerate the process, I think. But um, but one should also believe sometimes that there would be more women at business, heads of businesses, heads of states, and, and around. You know. So I think it still takes some time, because we need... Um, I think women are also becoming very clear that they don't always want that masculine way of working. So that has changed. Before they weren't clear. They just did it anyway and often suffered. Well, now it's becoming clear that "Mm, I don't want to suffer that much, they say. (laughs) They want to be actively creating business together. Because I think women these days, it's not like they don't want to be in business. They want to be in business. But they want to do it integrating some of themselves so that the journey is an inside journey and it's an outside journey and uh, so that has changed people becoming more part of journey lives so next year is going to be exciting we will be to Norway in Norway so I bring everyone up in up there uh, and um, and I think what we will do is also to look back and also look into the future at the same time so we'll take a status with the situation where are we now and what can we together create uh, because I saw in the early days Working abroad, I could also sometimes compare to Norway. So I could say, I know it's possible in one place on the planet so then it can be p- possible in another and i think this global exchange is so important because you can see oh they do this in japan they don't do it in norway but then it must be possible or they do this somewhere else you know or the women in one continent are very grounded have beautiful voices in africa for instance and then you have someone in germany with like their voices all in their head and nothing so what can we you know there's always something we can learn from each other but i think now we are at the stage where a vision is not only seeing what is what you have already seen somewhere else but more now co-creating going into a future we don't know yet what is but that together we have to sense out you know so we have to be good at sensing what's emerging and what we can then co-create together
1: Perfect way to end the co-creation of the future together, Kristen. Well done. A great week. Thank you so much. And now we're going to take a quick commercial break. Then I'm back in introducing you to my next guest.
3: News, opinion,
4: Search Voice America at your favorite app store.
3: News. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are tuned in to The Rise of the Feminine. If you have a question or comment about this program, please send an email to Gina at GinaLazenby.com. That's Gina at GinaLazenby.com. Here again is your host, Gina Lazenby.
1: I love what Christine said about sensing what's emerging. That was a lot of what the speakers I talked to on last week's show covered the future of work and business and the increasing role of women and growth of feminine values in that. And there was a great sense of sisterhood at the Win event, which is going to be so important to us in the world as more women emerge into greater positions of power. The message is consistent that we cannot achieve change alone. We have to work together. But clearly, the world needs the feminine difference that we can bring. My conversation next is with Win veteran Geraldine Bone. She was at the birth of this movement, so I wanted to talk to her about why she still comes to this event after all these years. Geraldine is the CEO of Domino Perspectives and is a specialist consultant in gender inclusion and spiritual intelligence in the workplace. Uh, Well I was here at the very
5: first one actually
1: and it was myself and Helen
5: Erickson who the year before had encouraged Kristen to set it up. She said she was going to do it in five years and we said oh you have to do it next year so the first conference was uh, 19 years ago in Milan there were 80 women there and Helen Erickson did the opening keynote and I did the closing keynote so I've been coming ever since I've not made it every year uh, but certainly the last six years I've been here regularly as a presenter or workshop leader or generally helping
1: out and attending it's fabulous what do you get from from your what do you get from attending here and what what do you see other women take away from this large community of women it's it's a, a huge it's inspirational and it's transformational
5: for me it's nourishment now. um, I remember when I set up in business 30 years ago, I was encouraged a lot by women who were much further along and much more experienced, and I really valued that. So I feel it's my time to kind of give back and do what I can for younger women coming through. But for myself, it just completely nourishes and sustains me. I made friends here who I've still got, who I see every year at Wynn. It's, It's a community, even though there's hundreds and hundreds of women here, meet new people every year, and I see people being transformed and moved and impacted by the things that they are hearing and it's in a completely safe environment. For some for some women it's the first time they really can be themselves and feel that it's okay to be just who they are without having to compromise themselves and their values and their essence to fit into some corporate or social environment that they feel always a little bit of an outsider in so to see that kind of togetherness is fantastic
1: so here there's a balance of women who have their own businesses um, lead businesses um, work for themselves uh, junior senior middle management of corporations so having been here for those 19 years what have you seen change in womanhood in corporate woman in business woman what what have you seen evolve over that period of time well, at one
5: time, when we first started, really, it was all about encouraging women to to get on and to be successful and to step ahead in your career and how to do it so there was way back twenty years ago still this thing about you know women need to be a little bit harder and a little bit more masculine because it was the masculine that got promoted. then that kind of moved to no no, no we don 't we 're not going to do it like that. we are going to retain our feminine skills, but you see now I think it 's changed from just women getting women to the top it's become and what are you going to do with the power when you are there it's become about yeah can we really change the world so the emphasis wasn't so much at the beginning on changing the world it was on changing yourself now the emphasis i think is on changing the world and the fact that we need strong authentic women to be able to do
1: it and now we're going to take a quick commercial break then i'm back and in introducing you to my next guest
4: Search Voice America at your favorite app store.
3: News. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are tuned in to The Rise of the Feminine. If you have a question or comment about this program, please send an email to Gina at GinaLazenby.com. That's Gina at GinaLazenby.com. Here again is your host, Gina Lazenby.
1: Geraldine spoke of seeing people being transformed and I can see that myself in the one visit I made to win the opportunities for growth were evident and I wish I'd had that when I was working in a high pressure job in the advertising industry back in the 1980s trying to prove myself struggling with an unhelpful boss who was wonderful when he recruited me but turned out to be a tremendous bully. After leaving there I would also have loved to to have had access to these ideas and coaching and mentoring and sisterhood when I set up my first business. None of that was available to me, or I could not see it. How times have changed. It's interesting reflecting over the last 20 years how women in the 80s and 90s were encouraged to step up but had to become fake men in the process. There's no question that that was only any other way of moving forward as, as a woman. Then over the years, women have moderated their quest for success in business seeking to retain their feminine nature where they haven't been able to, then perhaps they've needed to leave the organization. That's a space I know very well. I've spent the last 10 years working with many women who've left corporate life, set up their own enterprises, and I provided supportive communities and mentoring. Now, more women feel this is the right time to draw on our authentic way of doing things. So Geraldine had a good question. What will women do with the power once they're there at the top? If we can agree that the world is not working as it should, what will women do that will change the game? Win is is very much a forum, a training ground for learning how to tap into our authentic being, our natural feminine style. And from that space, we find our own way and our own place where we can change the game. Another person who has been a regular at the Win events and has certainly been in the gender conversation from the very early days is Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. Her book, Women Mean Business, is a Bible in this field. She's such a futurist in this conversation and like Geraldine, she has a long perspective. So I wanted to ask her about how she has seen things change in the wider arena of business for women. Aviva, you aren't really known as one of the leaders for a long time now in, in the, in the specialisation of gender. Uh, and and business and bringing the diversity into business. i have been doing that in Europe, well, globally for many years now, and you have been doing it in the last century. (laughs) So can you speak to where we might have come to and the point that we're at now as we were are 2016, but it is at the beginning of this new century. What do you see from your perspective of knowing Europe so well and knowing the global picture so well? Where are we with this feminine, masculine, woman, man conversation in business?
6: Well, actually, you, you, you put a word in there that is one of my, um, my, my struggles in the space. So you mentioned the word diversity, and I think that's where we've been, right? And The unfortunate um, Anglo-Saxon input into gender work has been to make gender a sub-dimension of diversity which I take as a personal affront as a woman. Uh, who's with who the hell is calling who diverse? Um, and I find that gender diversity is one of those particularly wicked um, You know, Women are now 60% of the educated talent pool. They're usually 80% of consumer despired decision makers and companies continue to refer to them as diverse. Well, that's a sort of set up to fail frame, right? While we look at women as some kind of strange minority to be managed by a diversity department that's also working with lots of other, you know, very interesting minority groups of all different kinds, people will bundle that stuff together. And so a lot of what we work on is, what are you bundling gender with Uh, and so a lot of what we suggest is that companies really take a good look at uh, their talent issues, their consumer and customer issues, stakeholder issues, and analyze, you know what does it look like, and do they want to reflect it in any way internally in their leadership teams? And if yes, you know that probably means If you look at where their companies are making, most of our clients are making most of their revenues now in relatively new emerging or emerged markets, Um, China, India, Brazil, uh, they don't necessarily have many Chinese, Indians, or Brazilians anywhere near their leadership pipelines. And that's actually a useful reference when you're talking about women. Um, and men and what's the balance between them and if you start looking at who's your talent there's a majority of women often coming in at the bottom and then a very steep drop-off of the percentage at almost every promotion level it's not a question of glass ceilings at all in most of the organizations we work with it's far more um what we call gender asbestos. There's something in the walls and cultures of too many organizations that simply self-replicates the same kind of usually male profiles into leadership and usually eliminates um, most of the women who were coming in. So figuring out what it is about cultures, environments, and the current leadership styles that is... Preferring self-replication over to innovation is one of the central questions, right? And I think companies that have spent the last 20 years still trying to make women behave, act, and run their careers more like men in order to succeed, of which some have, uh, and been relatively successful. I don't think that's very sustainable because the f- next generations of women now coming in just aren't ready to do that anymore. And so companies either see their retention numbers going way up, you know, their, um, their um, d- departure numbers going way up, or they're seeing um, that they're simply not promoting women. Finally, where
1: are we on the... Um, we've got a lot of female leaders in the UK... And potentially a leader in one of the leaders in Europe Angela Merkel, potentially um, female leader in America, where are we we wouldn 't have expected that a few years ago to happen so quickly. Are we halfway there are we are we are we going are we twenty percent there and then we 're going to have an exponential growth or are we almost there where Where are we if, if, if looking back over your, the period that you 've been
6: working with gender. I always think we don't look back enough, step back enough, because so I do think that if we stepped back, we are really in a millennial shift, right? We are unusually lucky as women to be living in a time in history where you know two thousand years of male dominated leadership and patriarchy has marked us all, right? We are all babies of this. And yet, you know we have seen emerge over the last especially 100 years, uh, especially 60 years since the pill, uh, a sudden emergence of 50% of the population into education, then management, now the beginnings of power. This is one of the biggest experiments in human history, right? People don't, I think, vastly underestimate its impact on everyone, every man, woman, and child on the planet's life has been affected by this profound transformation. And what does it mean to be what we're born to be, including all the people who refuse to say they are either man or woman and want to be one of the you know 49 other genders now on the planet, uh, now on the list? Um, so I think we underestimate the change that's happening. we certainly aren't recognizing the transitions inside of each of us that are required to adapt to it. so we're always complaining of women's you know lack of self-confidence or men's you know wow. entitlement. But those are small things. And I think what we're seeing politically now is, um, of course, the beginning emergence of women into power. It's not surprising that that happens, I think, first politically before it does in business because the rules of the game are quite different because it's a representational model. They have a duty to represent the people much more than the private sector does. Um, And I also think we're seeing the backlash, right? We are seeing in these days of Brexit and Trumpism um, the the wails of the dominant majority feeling its prerogatives get really seriously challenged now for the first time. So what will be the size of this backlash? Is there going to be a momentary um, just yelling? Are we going to go down? Are we going to go backward? Um, I mean, really, this American election, I think, is extraordinarily pivotal at this time. Um, And even if we do get Clinton through and this extraordinary range of women leading the globe, um... How will they do? It's a, it's a tricky time in history. It's not at all obvious. We've got some big external players, the Chinas and Russias, uh, the Irans. Um, if things go a bust, you know, women are easily held responsible too. So I'm very happy to have them at the helm. Um, I think they will bring something entirely different to the conversation. I would dearly love to see some of the first meetings between Merkel, Clinton and Lagarde, I must say. Um, oh, to be a fly on that wall. <laughs> oh, to, you know, there are definitely issues of trust that my colleagues spoke of earlier. Um, so I think all of this, it's so new. It's so different. And of course, it's exciting to women. And of course, it's, you know, can be... Co- worrying to men. And so I think that is one of the big lessons I've taken out of this political season, uh, is that we need to get much more inclusive about the way we as women lead. And we have to get off our 20th century bandwagon of promoting women and very quickly step up into global leadership, which is about leading a hundred percent of the population. Our time is now, but we need to transition inside to realize that.
1: And now we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then I'm back in introducing you to my next guest.
3: News. News. Opinion. Opinion. Opinion.
4: Search Voice America at your favorite app store.
3: News. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are tuned in to The Rise of the Feminine. If you have a question or comment about this program, please send an email to Gina at GinaLazenby.com. That's Gina at GinaLazenby.com. Here again is your host, Gina Lazenby.
1: Aviva is right. Gender is not diversity. How can it be if women make up 60% of the educated talent pool and at least 80% of customers? We can't be seen any longer as a strange minority to be handled or fixed. And she shared a great question. Do companies want to reflect in their leadership what their stakeholders and customers look like? Because that does move the conversation on from we must have more women to how leadership really should speak to and reflect customers on all stakeholders. Perfect logic, because for so many companies, their customers are 80 percent women. Did you notice Aviva used that term gender asbestos? Very interesting, because this is this is the real key, isn't it? If we women want to be in senior and top leadership positions and companies want us there, then what is it along the way in the walls and the ceilings which causes women to leave or abandon their quest for career progression or even to be abandoned by the organization and become invisible? Last week on the show, Professor Nigel Nicholson talked about how women can look at the top executive level and think it to be, as he put it, pretty poisonous. Keith Coates also talked about some executive structures being seen as toxic. So from these conversations, we're getting some insight into why women perhaps choose not to advance. As Aviva said, it is indeed an exciting time to be a woman. Women are 60% of the educated talent pool. Think back 100 years when there was virtually no educational opportunity for women. We are at a point of profound transformation. So many systems feel like they have run their course. Experiments in communism have largely failed. And yet capitalism, certainly as we know it now, has not provided for everyone. Half the wealth on the planet as measured three years ago, was owned by just over 80 people. When Nobel Peace Prize nominee Dr. Silla Elworthy spoke on this show a few weeks ago, she said that number was now 62 people who owned more than 50% of the wealth of humanity. How can that be a functioning system? The political structures in Europe are going through seismic changes and the political discourses during the American presidential elections look pretty destructive. All the narratives now need to change. So if an end of an era is so if an era is ending and a new one is opening up and more women are emerging into power, really starting to leverage their feminine capital, we are well placed to be the change makers. Having a deeper understanding of the shifts that we are part of is both important and helpful. So as much as the rise of the feminine is about women moving up, taking power, it is also a big conversation about the rise of feminine values. Now, a book that looks at a new emerging form of business for the future, which I really enjoyed, is Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business, and that's by John Mackey and Raj Sisodia. It really is a fantastic template for a new kind of business. And as I've studied it, what I can see is a shift in how business is done that quite frankly embraces feminine principles and values, but not necessarily saying that this is what they are. It's one of my favorite books. So you can imagine my delight when at the first evening of the Wynn Conference, I said good evening to a stranger at the speaker's mixer party. I then saw the name on his badge was... Raj Sisodia. He spoke on the second day in a plenary session on the company of the future, and you will love my conversation with him. Raj is the FW Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business at Babson College, Massachusetts. And he's a co-founder and co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism. So, Raj, yesterday when you spoke, you were talking about we were talking about the future of work and the future of business and how that is changing. And you were talking very much about how feminine values are coming in as you see them and you're using the words love and care and they're not words that we've normally used in business before so just speak to what you've seen as a shift or uh, what's happening in business.
7: So the world of business uh, for a long time has existed in a certain mode you know where it's been in a way it's a form of warfare you know all the language that we use in business all the organizational forms, the uh, hierarchy, etc., all of that comes from the military. So we use the military as the organizing metaphor. We talk about strategy and tactics and operations and front lines and capturing share and you know, all of those kinds of things. That, that, that whole mindset, as I said, very much militaristic. And it has worked up to a point, but it has also had huge costs in terms of the impact on human lives, men and women. Because it's a very corrosive atmosphere. It's one in which people get burned out. Uh, they get stressed out. Uh, the l- rate of heart attacks is highest on Monday morning. I mean, that's been true for a long time. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of stress at work. You know, most chronic diseases are due to stress. Most stress is due to work, and and that's really the uh, the root of our healthcare problems as well in many ways. So people are starting to realize that that way doesn't work and a number of companies have either started out in an alternative paradigm or have discovered an alternative paradigm that when you actually run a business that incorporates caring along with the idea of self-interest which is what most business is about that those are actually much more powerful because when you focus on the human beings who are at the heart of the enterprise and who are the ones that we serve through the company, that actually that creates a much more powerful, resilient, innovative, creative, thriving organization. And the companies that have discovered this, I mean Southwest Airlines, for example, or the Tatas 130 years ago, or, or many others that had that ethic at their core and often came from the founders' values, right? where they had a sense of stewardship as leaders, stewardship of the lives uh, that they touched. I think more and more now we're realizing that those are the companies that are the strongest because they tap into human potential to a far deeper extent. You know, the average level of employee engagement worldwide is 13%, according to Gallup, which is shocking if you think about it. So 87% of people are either indifferent or hostile to their own work. And all of those people cannot be creative, they cannot be innovative, and certainly they're not thriving. And they're achieving a a mere fraction of what they're capable of. And they're not contributing to the level that they're capable of either. So when you have companies that actually engage people at a deeper level, where there's an alignment with their values and their purpose, where people feel safe, where people feel cared for, those are the conditions in which people blossom and they're able to give their gifts which are extraordinary. I mean human beings are capable of extraordinary things and that's never been more true than it is today because the data shows that our IQ has been rising three to four percent a decade for the last eight decades. Mm-hmm. So the average person today mm-hmm. in the year 1936 would be in the top two percent of intelligence. Right? I mean, they would be considered a near genius, and that's average today. We are extraordinarily well-informed. We are amazingly connected today electronically. Right? We have access to much higher levels of education, especially women, and that's where I think the, the feminine side also comes in significantly, because if you look at the impact of higher education, Today we're in a world where more and more uh, of our uh, jobs require higher degrees of education. and That's where women have a huge advantage, because women represent 58% of college students in all industrialized nations. That's the average across 28 OECD countries. It's also the average in the US. And women outnumber men in just about every discipline. Uh, Even business schools are now catching up. They were lagging behind, but medical, legal, and all kinds of other professions. So anything that requires a college degree in the years to come will be, those professions will be statistically dominated by women. Mm -hmm. Just those are the numbers coming in through the pipeline. And women get higher grades, and they graduate at a higher rate as well.
1: And what are the women bringing? Are they bringing anything different uh, when they're coming into more of these roles?
7: So you know, if you go back 20, 30 years, the women who did make it into leadership, because there were so few of them, they had to conform to that masculine uh, way of being. In fact, they had to overcompensate on that dimension. You know, they were typically known as tougher than the, you know, the toughest men, so the Iron Lady Syndrome, right? Margaret Thatcher or Golda Mayer or Indra Gandhi in India who was called the only man in her cabinet. But I think now with, with numbers comes strength. When you have more women around you, Right, in the leadership suite when you have more women as your colleagues, then I think there's an uh, ability or a, an opportunity to actually be who you are and be more authentic mm-hmm. and not have to put on this mask and this armor right, in order to uh, go to work. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Women leaders who are coming up are actually able to lead authentically as who they are. And on the other side, you have all this research now that is showing that the requirements for successful leadership today If you just take away all the labels, just say, what are the things that we need, right? And you find that those things are all things that come more naturally to women, you know, what is needed today. And this has come out in a McKinsey study that was done on uh, centered leadership, as they called it. And halfway through, they discovered that everything that they were uncovering about what you need as leaders are things that come naturally to women. And men have to learn them. Men first have to unlearn what they think leadership is about.
1: Mm. So they've got those skills innately, but they're buried. Or they didn't value them or they yes, weren't taught exactly. them.
7: Exactly. And, you know, men, as I said, have underdeveloped those and, in fact, uh, you know, downplayed those uh, tremendously. So they have to unlearn. That, you know, The model of leadership for men is typically a uh, general, right, like general pattern or somebody like that. You know, command and control, forceful, decisive, uh, top-down, hierarchical, etc. So we have to unlearn that and learn the new way, which, as I said, comes more naturally. Men and women can both do it, but it comes a little more naturally on average to women. The Athena doctrine also discovered through 60,000 interviews that the attributes of leadership today are those that are traditionally considered feminine. Again, language sometimes gets in the way mm. because these are all human attributes. Uh, but, you know, that's the language we have right now. And it is it is true that there's a you know, preponderance of some of those for women and some others for men. Uh, but maybe it's relational versus transactional. I mean, there could be other language that we that we come up with. So there's that evidence. There's also evidence that shows that when you have women in leadership, on boards, in executive ranks, etc., the impact on the health of the business is dramatic. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of studies that show that, whether it's stock price performance, whether it's risk mitigation, whether it's uh, societal impact, environmental impact, ethics, uh, happiness, you know, engagement, all of those things dramatically improve when you have more women involved in, in leading. So there's tremendous amounts of evidence. so I think it's all coming together now. All the evidence, the numbers, the, the uh, rising consciousness, I think as we human beings evolve in our consciousness, we naturally move away from some of the baser you know instincts which are somewhat more associated with masculine. So you know there's less violence, there's less aggression, there's less you know sort of cutthroat competition, etc. and people are starting to learn to cooperate start to think win-win, start to think long term, start to think about the legacy and, and the future and all of these are things that again women tend to intuitively do better mm-hmm. in many ways.
1: And you talked about, you talked about numbers and this is the thing isn't it, we're talking here at this conference about sisterhood and when a woman is on her own it's very difficult for her to champion this different way of being but where we are there in numbers and s- such is the atmosphere of the time or the, the needs of the time that the things that we've buried, we can now express. This is what's making the effect on business. Now, yes. you've written, uh, co-written that book um, on conscious capitalism. And it's interesting, you put the word conscious in front yeah. of the word capitalism. And that, that changes. You've talked a lot in there about how there are certain companies that are really doing well. And what is it that those companies do, are doing that means they are st- streets ahead of other companies?
7: So the companies that practice what we now call conscious capitalism, and again they were doing this before there was a label for it, we just put uh, some language and a framework around it, that they have discovered that uh, first of all you need a purpose that goes beyond profit. Right. So the the default presumption about business for a long time has been that the only purpose for business is to maximize profits while staying within the law. That's why business exists, in order to make money. And that's a very narrow way of thinking about it. No other profession says that architects don't exist to make money, doctors don't exist to make money, right? engineers don't exist to make money. We as human beings don't exist just to make money. We need money to live, but that's not the reason for living. Why do we relegate this aspect of our lives right, to sort of a mercenary way of being? that everybody else is driven by some ideals and doctors want to heal and lawyers want justice and architects want to create beautiful environments. But businesses are purely mercenary and they just want to figure out how to make a buck. I think that's a very uh, narrow and uh, self-defeating way of thinking about business. Because when you think about it that way and you, you frame it that way, then you start acting that way. It becomes self-fulfilling in a way. But business actually is such a multi-dimensional, rich uh, area of, uh, of, of activity for us. right? It impacts our lives in so many ways. We spend about 100,000 hours working in our lives. That's all we have. And, you know, that is spent in the context typically of some kind of business. And if we cannot find meaning and purpose through that, that means a big part of our life is missing. Because for human beings, work matters. You know, that's how we leave a legacy. That's how we leave an imprint. That's how we achieve some kind of immortality through the work that we do. And businesses that don't enable that actually lose out on tapping into this extraordinary source of, Energy and, and passion and creativity. So, having a purpose is, is number one. You have to start there. And every business has to discover for itself what is its unique reason for being. Why does it exist? Why does it need to exist? The second is that you have to think about all the stakeholders simultaneously and think about creating value for all of them, not treating some as a means and others as an end. Typical company would say, well, we need suppliers and we need, you know. Uh, employees, etc., to create the products so we can sell them, and then eventually that's how we make money. But so those are all a means to the end of making money for investors. Conscious companies are realize that you have to treat all of them as ends in themselves because they're all people, right? And ultimately, it's all about people. The business of business is people, and if you can create value for everybody, if everybody thrives in that system, the whole system is going to be far more powerful and, uh, and successful in the long term. Right there's a there's sort of a multiplier effect that happens. There's a synergy across stakeholders because they are interconnected and interdependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third is the leadership. We have to have leaders who actually care about the purpose, care about the people, and they're not driven by ego and power and personal enrichment, which unfortunately most leaders have become mercenary leaders. They're just about you know they're hired guns. They go in and they fix the books and you know make the numbers work. But in the process, there's a human cost. And I think lastly is the culture that these companies recognize that if you create a culture in which people can thrive and people feel safe and they are, you know, able to trust, when there's transparency, and most importantly, when there's authentic caring, right, for people, then those environments are ones in which people flourish. You know, they don't say, thank God, it's Friday. They actually look forward to work on Monday. Uh, work is a source of fulfillment. It's a source of uh, social connection, emotional well-being, etc. All of those things put together, you know, you find that those companies operate at simply a much higher level. There's mm-hmm. extraordinary productivity there. There's extraordinary loyalty. There's tremendous word of mouth. You know, everybody conspires to help you, assist you. Nobody's laying awake at night trying to figure out how to you know, take you down because everybody is aligned with that system, right? And everybody understands what you're trying to do.
1: Yeah, and in uh, your book you talk about how, you know, employees are customers and stakeholders. They're not just in one category. They enjoy all aspects of relating to the company. So to be one of these companies, does it require, and, and therefore be more profitable and more successful, is it a requirement, does it cost more money to do that or is it simply a mental shift and that it's, I would say at the end of the day, you know, they're more profitable, it might even save money. But is there initially a greater cost or is it right coming from the top a different uh, set of values and a shift?
7: Yeah, I think it, it is a different uh, way of looking at the world and different set of values and priorities. So these companies spend money where it makes a positive difference. They don't waste money like a lot of companies do. So what are the biggest areas I consider of wasting money? One is excessive marketing. Continuous advertising, continuous promotion, coupons, sales, discounts, gimmicks, all the hype and hoopla of marketing, especially in the U.S., but increasingly in other countries as well.
1: And that's your specialist field, isn't it? Marketing.
7: (laughs) And I spent 10 years basically showing that that stuff doesn't work. You cannot buy loyalty, you cannot buy trust, right? Now, you can buy a form of loyalty, you know, behavioral loyalty. You can give people a frequent user program and give them incentives to keep coming back. But that's not emotional loyalty. That doesn't mean they actually care about the business and would promote it to others, right? So we are buying all of this false loyalty, right? And we're eroding trust and true, you know, uh, customer uh, satisfaction in in the process. So there's a huge, huge amount of money that's wasted there that you really don't need to spend so much if you're operating as a conscious company because you get the benefit of the best kind of marketing there is, which is free marketing. Word of mouth and satisfied customers coming back. Right? You don't have to keep bribing them to come back. Uh, The other area is employee turnover. You know, in most companies, especially in sectors like retail, the turnover can be 70 to 100 percent a year. And conscious companies are operating in the single digits. So Costco is seven percent, Walmart is seventy percent, right? So think about the difference that that makes in terms of your recruitment, training, all of that, mm-hmm. right? But also in terms of the amount of experience people have and how productive they become and effective they become with that experience, right? So when you've got somebody who's been there ten, fifteen years and they know the job, you know, extremely well and they've got all kinds of abilities to contribute, so that those two areas make a big difference there's also lo- uh, less uh, sort of layers of management needed in these kinds of companies because they are self-organizing self-managing self-motivating you don't have, don't have a lot of middle management so that's an area of cost that's reduced and legal costs are also lower so those are the areas you save and then you you also spend money because you you pay your people better right? You, uh, you give them better benefits and healthcare being uh, primary among those. Uh, you uh, provide you know, good customer care. You don't squeeze your suppliers, so you get high quality inputs. You get lots of innovation coming in from suppliers. And today that's more important than ever because more and more we're outsourcing things, right? And 80% of value is actually created by suppliers. Right? So you're spending in areas that actually makes a tangible difference in people's lives and in the quality of your uh, offerings. And you're not wasting money on these other areas where businesses tend to waste a lot.
1: Bit of a no-brainer really isn't it? That, that you would t- take that on board as a company and why do you think companies are slow to pick this up uh, and see this? Do th- they not know about it? What's the, what's the big resistance to even making an incremental shift or are they, are they making the incremental shifts?
7: See, Some people have a lot invested in not understanding this and I would say that uh, it applies to a certain kind of leader. So there are a lot of companies that have leaders CEOs, and board members who have come up with the old paradigm, right, where they've seen business purely as a way to make money, and they themselves are in it primarily for money. Right. They could be running a, a steel company today and, a, and an airline tomorrow and a food company You know, the day after that. It doesn't matter to them. It's all business, and it's all numbers. It's all seen through the filter of numbers. As long as they're making a lot of money, and in that system, leaders do make much more money. In the traditional system, you know conscious companies tend to pay their leaders somewhat more modestly the frontline people are paid b- better than average but the people at the top are paid relatively modestly compared to their peers the, the ratio is is lower whole foods has mandated that that cannot be higher than 19 times right and the typical us company right now is close to 400 right awesome. uh, ceo versus so that's a 20 times difference right at the at the top yeah. So in those companies, you have leaders who primarily care about money, and they rose up through the system based on their ability to deliver numbers. And for them, you know, this, this does not appeal at a deep gut level, you know, because you have to have leaders for whom this matters at a human level, not just because these companies are more successful in the long term. We do have CEOs who look at the financial performance of conscious companies over the long term, which we outperform the market, and they say, we want to do it for that reason. And I typically say to them, then it won't work. Because if you're doing it for that reason, it probably will not have the same effect. If you're doing it because you believe it's important to take care of people and look after people and treat people well, right, and to you know, look after the communities and be responsible with the environment and, and, you know, et cetera, if you think those are the right things to do inherently, regardless of whether they lead to making more money, then it works. Then that's that's when, you know, it has the power. But when you do it just, again, as a means to an end, then people can see through that, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have, and, and again, the consciousness of the leader, therefore, matters. And I think a lot of companies right now are led by people and have boards of directors, with people with that different consciousness. Can that be awakened? Yes, it does happen. But, uh, you know, we don't know how to exactly make that happen. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, um, you know, it can be uh, somewhat of a crapshoot in some ways.
1: Do we have to wait for them to die off? Is it a generational thing and let the younger ones with different yeah. ideals and values come forward? Is it, a, you know, wait 20, 30 years and we'll turn around and it won't be a conversation? Yeah.
7: I would hope not. So, you know, I just spoke at the National Association of Corporate Directors in Washington. And I said, you know, your duty as directors is to appoint the right kind of leader. And you don't have to wait. You you know, you can bring in a leader and it doesn't have to be necessarily a young person. I mean, there are plenty of people uh, who are more seasoned who also have this consciousness. But you have to put in a leader who authentically cares, right? Not just about the bottom line, but about all the impacts because businesses have many, many impacts, right? It's not just financial wealth. We create or destroy many kinds of wealth. So if you have leaders, if you can appoint leaders and then give them time and give them the support that it takes to accomplish this kind of transformation, you know, then that will future proof your company. Otherwise, a lot of these co- big companies today, it's like that movie Dead Man Walking. I mean, these are dead companies walking because they could fall off a cliff because they are not aligned with where the world is going. They're not aligned with what resonates with people. You know, the customers of the future, the employees of the future, the investors of the future, the citizens of the future are going to look for more than just what have you done in the last year or the last quarter, you know, financially. They're looking at what is your impact.
1: And when we're looking at uh, how do we get more women to these higher levels where the biggest decisions are made, I think you agree that that would be one of the influences where women, you can't say that men don't like to have meaning, but there's a lot of women who really want to bring meaning into their work. And if they're there in sufficient numbers, then their appearance and uh, progression to those higher levels, that's potentially one way we can create the shift, isn't it?
7: Yes, absolutely. And I do think numbers matter. I mean, there's evidence that shows that there's only one woman on a board, can't do much. The minute you have two, things start to shift significantly. You know, just strengthen even two out of 10. But that makes a difference. Mm. It should be way beyond that. I mean, it should be equal or it should be at least four or five, yeah. So uh, I think that's an important step, you know, starting there, bringing more women into those leadership ranks. And bringing also younger people into into those situations, because you know they have the most invested in the future, so we need to and they have a different value. so the millennials do have this purpose-driven orientation, right And, uh, and bringing that perspective and that energy into leadership also is very important, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Raj, thank you. I look forward to the day when we look back on this conversation and it's a non-conversation that we think, why were we even talking about Mm -hmm. it, (laughs) that we've actually got to a place where that's the normal way of doing business. Thank you very much for sharing those insights with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Whatever name you ascribe to it, and here Raj talked about conscious capitalism, what we've heard over these two episodes reporting from the WIN event in Rome is how business really is changing. And if it isn't, it seems to be in trouble. Dead companies walking as Raj just described it. New priorities and new values are being embraced and with love, care, compassion, collaboration and valuing relationships all being embraced more widely, it really looks like the feminization of businesses starting to take place to the benefit of all men and women many speakers talked about a shift happening articulating how the system both needs and is ready for embracing a new version of capitalism in the 21st century and with these new feminine values any which way you look at it women will be bringing more answers and providing much more important leadership well, that's it for now. It's time to close the show. Next week we're going to be talking about motherhood. Please do connect with your views. My email is Gina at GinaLazerme.com, or remember there's the Facebook page called Rise of the Feminine Radio. So until next week, stay well and thank you very much for joining me on the Rise of the Feminine.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed the program this week. Be sure to tune in to The Rise of the Feminine with Gina Lazenby every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.